Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fireside Thoughts, where I ask controversial yet important questions and explain why I don't think the answers are so black and white. I also provide my own perspective on these topics based on in-depth research and reasoning, and open up the floor to any counterpoints people may provide. Before we get started, I wanted to let you all know that Fireside Thoughts is now available to listen to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, in addition to multiple other platforms. You can find the links to all of these in my Instagram bio. And you probably have already noticed if you're watching on Instagram, but I have decided just to revert to recording the audio rather than the video. Puts less pressure on me, allows me to express my thoughts a little more clearly if I'm being honest, so uh, we'll see how this pans out, and I think I might just stick with it. So the other day I was scrolling mindlessly through Instagram, as I often do, and I stumbled across a video of a protesting crowd chucking snowballs at police officers, and the caption read, this is what we like to see. And I was startled, to say the least, and it really got me thinking about this whole defund the police movement. And so over the past week I've spent hours researching further into the topic, trying to find an answer to a very important question. Should we defund the police? I first want to separate the concepts of defunding the police and abolishing the police. Uh, I very starkly disagree with abolishing the police, and if you want to know the research that went into that opinion, feel free to message me and I will send it to you gladly. But when it comes to defunding the police, I think that things become more fuzzy, and there's not a clear answer one way or the other, and that's actually what I wanted to explore more in depth in this episode. Uh, for the purposes of this podcast, defunding the police means diverting funds away from law enforcement and redistributing them to other areas of society. Personally, I feel like saying defund the police without actually knowing how much funding the police receive is pretty careless, and so I decided to look into that. Well, according to data compiled from the U.S. Census Bureau's annual survey of state and local government finances, which is a mouthful to say, only 4% of state and local spending in 2017 went towards the police, just 4%. The other categories that surpassed it were public welfare, elementary and secondary education, higher education, health and hospitals, and highways and roads, all received more funding than the police. Of that 4%, 96% of the police budget went towards operational costs such as salaries and benefits, and even then, the salary of the average police officer is only $67,000, according to Forbes magazine. It is worth noting, though, that of that 4% dedicated to the police, uh, most of that is actually from local funding, and that means that a much larger portion of the local government budget actually goes towards the police. However, I think that when talking about defunding the police on a national scale, it's important to look at what the national priority is. And so uh, you have to look at all levels of government, how they allocate their money. And the federal government gives basically nothing to local law enforcement, and the state gives only a fraction of their budget to local law enforcement. So I think what this says is that in society, there's a very incorrect perception of just how much funding is going towards police. People think that it's a huge, huge portion of the government's budget, but in reality, that's not the case. Uh, a big portion of it does go to like military and healthcare, um, but not a huge portion of it goes to the police. I guess the next logical question to ask is, well, is there a problem in the police department? 
and I think that this is a very important question, and as such, I spent a long time looking into this because it is the entire crux of this topic. According to a paper published by the U.S. Department of Justice, I quote, 48% of recruits were trained by academies using a training model that was more stress than non-stress oriented in its approach. Only around 18% of recruits were trained by academies that maintained more of a non-stress environment. According to that same paper, each recruit received an average of 168 hours of training in firearms, self-defense, and the use of force, while only receiving around 9 hours of training for mediation or conflict management. That same report also found that the average length of a basic law enforcement training program was 21 weeks or 5 months. Keep in mind that this report reflects data from 2013, so things may have changed since then, but this is the latest report I could find from the Department of Justice. So in my opinion, this report reflects three problems in the policing institution. Uh, the environment with which recruits are trained, the length of time for which they are trained, and the number of hours dedicated to each individual category of training. Um, police officers are meant to protect citizens and it does raise a few alarms when majority of their training is in the use of force. I will make the case, however, that if the use of force is substantially necessary in response to 911 calls, then dedicating such a high percentage of hours to training in the use of force is not actually a problem. So it is worth investigating what percentage of 911 calls do require that use of force. And what I found actually surprised me quite a bit. A study performed by the New York Times found that across 10 major cities, only around 1% of calls for service have been for serious violent crimes, and these include homicide, robbery, rape, and aggravated assault. I think everyone can agree that these sorts of crimes do require the use of force and as such the presence of an armed police officer on the scene. But as we can see from this data, only 1% of calls for service require that force and as such you could draw the conclusion that only 1% of calls for service require the use of armed police officers. And that conclusion, to be clear, would still fall in very gray area and would still be quite debatable because there are other crimes like nonviolent crimes that may not require the use of force but may require the threat of force to bring under control. But I will make the claim that only these 1% of calls for service absolutely require an armed police officer on the scene. So in my opinion, the police do need reforming. There is clearly a problem, and in fact, I think there's clearly an issue when only 1% of calls for service require the use of force, yet every call for service brings an armed police officer to the scene. I also believe that the training programs for police academies would need to be reworked in order to introduce a more balanced training environment for recruits and it would be greatly beneficial to implement more hours of problem assessment, conflict management, accountability and ethics, and verbal tactic training. What I don't understand sometimes is the idea that taking away money from an institution will lead to the reform of that institution. There are very, very few, if any, institutions in our country that operate under that logic. Let's take, for example, inner-city public school systems. Uh, a lot of these schools have teachers that fail to teach their students or adequately prepare them for higher education. And no reasonable person would argue that we should divert funding or defund public schools. Uh, because public schools are an integral part of society, and many people argue that they should receive more funding in order to give them the resources they need to change. 
And some of you may argue that the police are not an integral part of society, but I will bring up uh, this point. In a book published in 2011, Franklin Zimring, a UC Berkeley Law School professor, used the police staffing per homicide as a measure of police number to conclude that increasing police presence, accompanied with changing policing tactics, was the cause of the large New York City crime decline. And other studies conducted in prior decades showed similar results. A 2002 study by UChicago economist Steve Levitt found that increasing police numbers brought down violent crime by 12%, and he did this using data from 122 cities from 1975 to 1995. So trying to make the argument that law enforcement is not an integral part of society, uh, that argument kind of falls apart in the face of data. So what's the solution? And I think it's really important to ask that question because um, I think it's pretty pointless to bring up a problem if you're not sure how you're going to go about solving it. Uh, so I did some looking into this, and I found a really good article by the Council on Foreign Relation, which it investigated the policing in other countries, as well as in certain areas in the United States. In Eugene and Springfield in Oregon, there's a program called CAHOOTS, in which unarmed medics and crisis workers respond to 911 calls relating to individuals experiencing psychological crises, which make up around 10% of police calls. In England and Wales, community support officers can fine someone who litters or confiscate alcohol from a minor, but they must ask police officers to make arrests. And in Australia, community liaisons work alongside officers to reduce crime and foster cross-cultural understanding and communication between police and minority groups. A lot of people believe that because community policing tactics like these have worked elsewhere in the world, that we should automatically assume that they're a great idea and that we should implement them in the United States. But that's easier said than done. The United States has one of the most decentralized policing institutions in the entire world, with over 18,000 independently operating police forces. The more centralized a country's police are, the easier it is to implement changes that will affect all police forces across the entire country. And the problem with the US is, if we were to implement community policing tactics among our institutions, we would have to do so on an individual basis with over 18,000 police forces. So what does police centralization actually look like? In Sweden, they only have one centralized police force that's controlled by the federal government, but that's also more practical for Sweden because they are a smaller country. If we take a country that's more similar to the United States, let's say England, what they have are uh, local police departments just like ours, except that all of them have to comply with certain federal standards for training. I personally think that that is a more reasonable solution than community policing tactics. Um, the problem with the community policing is that we have so many policing agencies, all of which have to follow different sets of rules from local and state governments. Uh, it would be very, very difficult to try to implement this everywhere in the United States. Um, however, if we were able to somehow get the federal government to implement regulations that have to be followed nationwide, that would be a genuine way to solve this problem. To be clear, I don't disagree with community policing, it's just that I think that centralization has to come first and then community policing. I think in addition to these regulations, I think it is always helpful to reduce the violence or crime rate in a community, and a really effective way to do that uh, was actually featured in an article by the Washington Post, which described the violence reduction unit implemented in the city of Glasgow in Scotland. I probably butchered that name, but whatever. 
After Glasgow was dubbed the murder capital of Europe, the police decided to try something new with this unit, and this unit consisted of doctors, nurses, and surgeons, and they would go around to schools and describe very graphically what it was like to patch up a knife wound after a knife fight. Um, and what do you know, very quickly the murder rates in Glasgow dropped dramatically. And I purposely have not addressed the question of finance till now because I wanted to present all the work that would need to be done in order to actually reform the police institution. And all this work, that costs money, it's not free. And trying to take money away from the police institution is not going to allow these things to happen. What needs to happen is that the police institutions need to be given more resources with the restriction that they have to use them to implement these programs. Some people make the case that if we were to take funds away from the police and instead invest those in addressing problems in the community, such as mental health and homelessness, that crime rates would drop and the need for police would be lower. It's a really good concept, ideally, but practically that leaves a very long period of time where the police are understaffed and under-equipped while crime is still very, very high, because that process would take years to implement before the, you would actually see the changes in the community. Now, some people might argue that the police have already received increased funding over the years, and technically that's correct. Uh, according to a report by the Urban Institute, police spending has increased dollar-wise from 42 to $115 billion from 1977 to 2017, and that is accounting for inflation. However, as a percentage of total state and local budget, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, police spending has remained at just below 4% during that entire time period. And so it's important to take into account other factors that might be increasing the dollar amount that is being spent on police while not increasing the percentages, such as a rising economy. As I mentioned earlier in this episode, majority of the funding that goes towards police actually goes directly to salaries and benefits. And so the problem with defunding the police is that a majority of the funds that you take away will probably be taken out of the salaries of the police officers, which as it is, it does, isn't very much right now. And that's, that's an issue, because if you're looking to improve the police force and equip yourself with better trained officers, you need to pay them more. Imagine you're in a job interview, and your interviewer says to you, yeah, you are much more educated, you're much more qualified than everyone who's come before you, we're just gonna pay you less money. Like, you're gonna walk out of that room because that doesn't make sense. Similarly, having to implement longer training programs will also increase the amount of funding that the police require. So that combined with increased salaries for better officers, you're looking at a situation where you can't really afford to take more money out of the institution. Well, Jordan, what about all that money that the police spend on guns? Why not just use that money to fund these programs? Well, here's the thing. I looked into that and I found an article by CNBC. The Police spend zero dollars on weapons. It's actually uh, something from the federal government, the 1033 and the 1122 initiatives that allow the Department of Defense to transfer excess military equipment to local law enforcement agencies completely free of charge. Um, they just pay for shipping and maintenance, and I guess you could view that uh, in multiple different ways, but what it does mean is that uh, you can't just take money out of gun budgets because there is no gun budget. And I guess the next logical question is, well, Jordan, where does all this money come from then? Well, let's consider what I'm suggesting here for a second. I'm suggesting that the federal government 
tell the local governments what to do with their police forces, and usually that doesn't go down so well. So right now the federal government gives zero money, basically, to local police. What if the federal government took some money out of, say, the military budget, which accounts for 54% of all spending of the federal government, what if they took that and dedicated it to local police departments with the one caveat that that money has to be used to implement these new federal regulations. That way, everyone gets something out of this deal. The local governments get to uh, have more money to work with, and in exchange, they give up some of their autonomy so that the federal government can regulate their training practices. I will stress again that this is not just free money that the police could use however they want. This money would be specific amounts given by the federal government with the pure purpose of implementing new regulations and training programs that um, the police institutions would have to follow in order to receive that extra money. Also, I'm not going to pretend to understand the nuances in the finances and regulation and jurisdiction between the federal and local governments. That To, to learn about that would require so much time that I do not have. Uh, but if anyone is familiar with that, I would love to hear from you and um, you can tell me how practical my solution is, and I will probably then address that in a follow-up. But this is just a big-picture overview of what could be implemented in order to um, reform the police in a better way than trying to take money away from it. So, in conclusion, is there a problem in the police force? Yes, I think there is. Um, should we solve it by defunding the police? I would say no. I would say quite the opposite. To solve this problem, I think it's necessary to dedicate more resources towards the police. I will, however, express how wrong I think it is to express disrespect towards a police officer without valid cause. And I think that just because another police officer somewhere else has done something very wrong, that is not a valid cause to disrespect police officers. Um, it's the 16th most deadly job, according to Business Insider, uh, with a fatality rate of 13.7 people per 100,000. And it's, it is not an easy job to be a cop. And so even in the midst of calling for reform, we need to make sure that we are all treating people with the respect they deserve. And I think that if we were to generalize all police based off the actions of a few of them, then we're really playing into the same problem that we're trying to solve. So by all means, go out and call for whatever reform you think any institution needs to improve it. I think that that can, in many cases, be a very healthy thing. Uh, in fact, that's how society progresses as a whole. But where I draw the line is when you start to attack individuals within that institution by claiming that everyone in that institution is just as bad as the worst of those people. That being said, I do want to address all members of law enforcement who might be listening to this. I think Trevor Noah put it beautifully when he said that even though there are good apples and bad apples, it's the responsibility of the good apples to keep the bad apples accountable. And I entirely agree with that. I understand that there's probably a very strong sense of camaraderie in the police force. Uh, even as a student, I know there's an unspoken rule that you don't really rat out your friend who cheated on a test, even if you do tell them how wrong it was for them to do so. I just don't think that that same logic applies to an occupation like the police, because the police hold so many people's lives in their hands, and when dealing with the lives of others, 
there should be a very strong sense of accountability and camaraderie is not a valid reason to not report a fellow officer who has done something wrong. So that basically sums up all the thoughts I have on this topic. Um, I encourage you guys to send me your counterpoints and correct anything I might have said that was incorrect and all of that will be compiled into a um, follow-up episode. For those of you on Instagram, you can send me a DM and for everyone else, feel free to email me at firesidethoughtspodcast at gmail.com and I will get back to you as soon as I can. If you enjoyed this podcast or at least found it insightful, I would love it if you shared it with those around you. Um, The whole goal of this podcast is to uh, slow the divide in our country, and the more people that listen to my podcast, the more effective I am at playing a part in that. And so um, it would mean the world to me if you would share this uh, on whatever platform you listen on. Again, my podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, a bunch of other platforms, as well as Instagram. And I thank you for listening through this entire episode, and I really hope you took something away from it. I'll see you on the next episode. Bye, guys.